Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England. Now, it just so happens that my place of holidaying was frighteningly hot. So, if I moved more than one nanometer, I disappeared in a pool of sweat just like the Wicked Witch of the West. So, I wrote podcast episodes instead. And so, the history of England is saved for a few more weeks. Last time we'd got to the revolution in the halls of Westminster and the radical events that led to the expulsion of the Lusignan and the issuing of the Provisions of Oxford. One thing I forgot to mention last time was that the provisions were the first official document to be issued in the despised and reviled English language since the conquest. This reflects the nature of the revolution, the involvement of a much wider cross-section of a society. And it also reflects the whiff and indeed genuine odour of social radicalism. There is a genuine strand of opinion that's pushing the line that this is not just about how the king treats his magnates, it's also about the common man even... Ah, gasp down to the level of the peasant. The provisions of Oxford were reforming the realm for the benefit of the full commonwealth of the realm, even the oiks. And so it should be written in the language of the oik as well. Radical stuff, clearly. But before we follow the journey towards the death squads on the fields of Esham, I thought we should take a breather. Because so far we've treated the provisions of Oxford as an entirely politically driven set of measures and movement. Yes, we've pointed to a few things about Henry's tyranny that reached down to all levels of society, but the political story has felt very much like a struggle of the magnates. But to a very large degree, the whole movement reflected the realities of changes happening in the country. So, we shall pause, just for a while, and catch up on how the country has changed. After all, it's been 30 episodes or more since we looked at the general picture of life in medieval times. And although change is much slower than maybe it is in modern times, change... There is still, make no mistake. Over the next few episodes, we'll talk about the economic and social history of the 13th century and include something of the changes of the church to boot. There is some debate about when the medieval warm period ends, and even if it exists at all, but if evidence there is, then it points to the change beginning to happen or becoming relevant at the end of the 13th century. So the general big picture of the 13th century is a continuation of the 12th century stuff we talked about. Generally good harvests, with really no bad harvest between 1260 and 1290, a steady growth in population, to the point where the population of England is as high in 1300 as it will be in the 18th century, price inflation, increasing pressure on land, and the growth of towns. I guess normally we'd start top-down, but hey, let's do a bit of yellowing, as my daughter would say. Let's start with the life of the rural peasant. There are a few broad themes here we're going to follow, focusing on the peasant's role in the economy. There are the patterns of landholding, family and inheritance, and how they change through the century as the pressure on land grows. 
There's the increasing commercialisation of the peasantry and their increasing integration into the economy. And then there's the many and various ways that you could make a buck in the Middle Ages if you were a peasant. So let's start with a bit of revision and visualise a typical village. Let us call it Anywhereton. Now I know what you're thinking. Surely it depends on what part of England we're visualising as to what Anywhereton looks like. Customs vary so much, you say, from place to place. Well, no one likes a smart ass. So shush. But yes, I take the point. And where relevant, I'll try to mention variations. We're going to concentrate, though, on the customs that predominate in the massive swathe of central and northeastern England, with nucleated villages and an open field system around it. In our village of Anywherton, there's a substantial group of freemen, sometimes called Franklins, who own significant amounts of land, maybe 40 to 100 acres, i.e. more than the basic unit of land. The basic 30-acre unit of land is called a vergate, or a yardland, or an ox gang, depending on where you are. The Franklin has enough land to feed a family and create a comfortable surplus for sale, and some of these freemen are successful villains, who have managed to get enough land together to become comfortable, and to buy themselves out of the service they owed to the Lord. They might even be on their way to qualifying for knightly status. This is perfectly possible, though probably not common. One example is the Kniverton family in Derbyshire, who do this very thing. Now, I remember one of you contacting me and telling me that you are indeed descended from the Knivertons. Well, congratulations, you are one of a line of self-made men. In our village, we also have freemen who are descendants of the original soldiers of the conquest. And then you'll notice some who give themselves airs and graces. These are the younger sons or daughters of a local lord, who couldn't inherit the main estate and whose father wasn't rich enough to give them a manor. Let's say our village has 50 families and 200 souls. It has seven rich freemen families, probably, which is pretty typical. Whatever their family background, they occupy a special place in the village hierarchy and have a lot of social status, not just because they own land, have a bit of money, employ a couple of people. They don't owe service to the Lord and therefore have access to royal justice rather than being forced to go to the baronial court. Plus, they're integral to the running of the place. Every three weeks, there's a meeting of the Hundred Court and they give judgments. When the royal justices come round on one of the circuits, they give evidence, and there are normally a lot more of them on these airs than the local lords. The next group are a range of unfree peasants, with a wide range of landholdings, but potentially some quite substantial. But these are the villains. They owe service to the lord, such as two days a week work, on the Lord's domain land, and maybe three days a week at harvest time. And then at the bottom of the tree are the landless or the smallholders, cottagers, domestic servants, local labourers, that sort of thing. These are the guys who are at the mercy of the economic winds. Basically, the rule of thumb is that if you have less than half a vergate, or say less than 15 acres, you're going to have to supplement your income somehow. Though again, with the caveat that it really does depend on where you live. Before we go on, a question. What is the commodity that everyone, and I mean everyone, prizes more than all others? Is it freedom, gold, silver, livestock, status? Well, all of these things are important, but in the end, until and indeed until well after the Industrial Revolution, land is the thing. Land gives the medieval man so much of what they want. Status, security, a way of making money, something to hand on to future generations. There's a famous quote that sprung to my mind, 
which isn't obviously connected with this point, actually, but I'm going to try and make it relevant in some way, just so that I can tell the anecdote. There is a famous foreign minister in the 19th century when Britain is at the height of their world power, called Lord Palmerston. He's the absolute incarnation of gumboat diplomacy. He was asked by some polite foreign diplomat, who asked him, if he wasn't an Englishman, what nationality would he like to be? The answer came back with reassuring English arrogance. If I were an Englishman, sir, I should want to be an Englishman. Now, during this period, there is an increasing number of people without land, though slavery is now completely gone. And my rather laboured attempt to link to the anecdote is that there may be people who survive happily in the 13th century without significant amounts of land, but their main motivation beyond survival is to acquire land. So, ask a medieval man what he'd want if he didn't have land, and he'd tell you that he'd want land. Is that laboured enough for you? Nice anecdote, though. The point is that land, lack of it, or the need to preserve it, drove many decisions people made. And they'd all want to avoid becoming a smallholder. But by the late 13th century, an underclass had indeed grown up of workers without land. They could account for up to 20% of the village population, often working for as little as one penny a day. Their existence oiled the economic wheels through the availability of cheap labour, but they lived on the edge of disaster. There are, of course, other people rolling around the village. The village priest, for example. He was basically usually a member of the peasantry, supported by a bit of land attached to the church called the Glebe, and then the tithe as well, 10% of everyone's income to everybody's delight. Then there would be the Lord's Reeves and bailiffs. And then some tradesmen. On the whole, more specialist trades would be provided by the towns, but there were key jobs that every village needed to be able to provide. So the smith would have been one, but also leather workers, tailors and builders such as carpenters and thatchers. Generally speaking, these guys would have some land as well as their trade. The number of tailors, incidentally, suggests that by this time, a significant number of peasants must have had their clothing made up by a professional. The likelihood is that the householder wove the cloth and the tailor made up the clothing. Let's assume that we have some families in Anywerton who are contemplating a marriage and let's base them on a real example. So let me introduce the Maud and the Wade families. Note that by the 13th century the church had definitely established the rules around marriage and all that was needed in theory was the consent of the happy couple. So, in principle, young John Wade and Davisia Maud's eyes could have met over the threshing floor and things could have gone on from there. In the real world, it didn't happen like that. Marriages were a family decision. They were carefully weighed up and agreed by the parents. Marriage was approached with a lot of caution. This wasn't an easy decision. It had implications, particularly because in the long term, the marriage would determine the descent of the land. So it's more likely that the father, Richard Maud, told young Avicia one day that John Wade, he looked like a likely lad. Avicia replied that John looked like the south end of a north-facing cart, but... But when her father told her that he had a nice plot of land, suddenly Avicia decided that maybe he didn't look quite so bad after all. Because marriage could only go ahead if the couple could be provided with some land. This might not be inherited land necessarily. It might be that the parents managed to buy a plot. And it might be as little as a cottage and a garden, but something was definitely needed. And of course a dowry would be needed from the woman's father. In this case... 
The Wades and the Mauds sat down and came to an agreement. The Wades would provide a plot of land, and the Mauds would send a visier over with a cow worth ten shillings and clothing worth thirteen shillings, and they'd build a house for the couple worth forty shillings. The Mauds and the Wades would have weighed a few other things in mind as well when hammering out their deal. They'd consider whether they'd get this past the local lord, because since they were villains and therefore not free, they'd have to buy a licence from him to marry and transfer the land. So he'd have to approve. And they'd have considered the general view of the community as well. Now in this case, the Wades may not have simply taken part of their land and transferred it to their son. They may have been able to buy a plot, for example. The point is that it's not the case that peasants always had to wait for their parents to die to acquire land. All of this meant there was in practice a relationship between the economy and population growth. In general, teenage marriage wasn't a social problem and a cause for furrowed brows and social legislation back then. It was a matter for celebration, because look, the sands of time are running out already. But if times were bad, couples had to wait until their mid or late twenties before getting married because they just couldn't afford the children. And if they waited, they would, of course, have fewer children. And by and large, children just weren't born out of wedlock. So, for example, single serf women who had sex were liable to a tax from their lord called a leerwhite, literally a tax for lying down, and a childwhite if they had children. If you took a wander around anywhere, and by the way, you might notice that the size of families varied. The better-off families seemed to have about five children while the poorer cottagers only had a couple. In the 13th century, the average number of children tends to be higher than in the 12th, with more peasant families having three rather than two children. You'd notice that the family structure remained very much as it was in the 12th century, and will be forevermore, in fact, i.e. a nuclear family, with parents and children. Though, if you got into deeper conversation, you'd realise that the extended family wasn't an irrelevance. People knew who was doing what and where they were and would look to the extended family to help out with specific crises. Or maybe do things like provide a start to someone looking to move to the local town, that sort of thing. And while we're taking this wander around, by the way, you'd notice that one important change from the 12th century is the adoption of stone foundations in the domestic buildings. Despite the increased building cost, it enormously prolonged the life of the timbers the arrangement of the buildings in the village hasn't changed from the 12th century and still reflects the good old English attitudes to privacy. What I mean by this is that the average Englishman has always and will probably always be a bit of an unfriendly SOB. So medieval man very often lived in very close communities which were based on a collective identity with shared assets and activities. But they surrounded themselves with hedges, ditches, walls, secured outer doors with locks and protected windows with shutters. Inside, clothing and valuables were locked in stout chests. No evidence of big signs saying, welcome, come in, don't hesitate to ask, or any of that sort of stuff. This open, friendly, inviting thing, it just isn't us. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. While we're on it, one of the books I read by an eminent chap called Michael Prestwich made me laugh. He starts by quoting a contemporary source who says that ordinary Englishmen, given food and drink, were as handsome as the nobility, with excellent, fair complexions and an attractive smell. Good point about the smell, by the way. But he then goes on to say, it would be wrong to idealise them. For the most part, the records suggest that they were ungenerous, suspicious, highly litigious, as well as downtrodden. Theirs was a miserable existence. So, that's making it pretty clear. I suspect this reflects one of the issues, that the life of the peasantry isn't written down. We can gather bits from archaeology, but a lot of it comes from court records, which are more numerous in the 13th century, but which hardly reflect the finer side of human nature. I suspect to say that it's perfectly correct, though, that for most, life would be pretty hard, and it's as well to remember that as well. In the end, even more than today, peasant families were eager to set their children up, because the pension policy industry in the 13th century was an opportunity waiting to happen. Medieval man would have dreamt of the opportunity to have a slick salesman miss-sell a pension on them. In the 13th century, you made your own arrangements. And to your average peasant family, this meant the children. Though, of course, it's worth noting that the problem is not like these days with our long life expectancy. The market of the silver surfer is some way off. Retirement in the 13th century basically meant a short and terminal illness. But of course it was just possible that you could live to an age where working the land effectively and making a living could be a problem, so some provision had to be made. So to illustrate this, let me introduce you to another family in Anywhereton, again based on reality, the Brettendons. Elias and Christine de Brettenden are getting on a bit, and they're finding it difficult to keep things going on the farm. They're not a rich family, they have half a yard land or 15 acres, which is basically enough to feed the family and create a small surplus in better times, but not much more than that. So, Elias and Christine sit down with their son John and agree that they'll give all the land to him, and in return he will provide them with a place to live and suitable food and drink for the rest of their lives. It just so happens that John has been mewling and puking for a couple of years about getting his hand on the lands, so Elias and Christine don't entirely trust their own flesh and blood not to turf them out the moment the transfer is completed. So, in this case, they have a formal contract drawn up at the Lord's Court. Now, I have to admit that most of this is not particularly 13th century, and probably applied just as much as the 12th. It's just that in the 13th century we have so many more surviving records. This in itself, by the way, is some evidence of an increasingly complex society and the greater availability of educated people with the ability to write. Population growth continues in the 13th century, but isn't evenly spread throughout the country. Some places don't grow at all. So, for example, the village of Compton Verney in Warwickshire had 48 households in 1086 and just 45 in 1280. This could be for a number of reasons. The Lord may have simply decided that he wasn't having his tenants subdivide their plots and therefore confusing the dues he was owed, in which case there was no room for new families. Or more likely it could be that there was simply no room for expansion. We covered a sarting last time, didn't we? And I'm sure you'll all remember what this is. 
but just on the off chance some of you have forgotten, a sarting is the process by which more land is brought into cultivation. Often the deal is that the peasant converts a parcel of wood or heath into arable or pasture and gets a period free from rent in return. So the villages that could grow most easily would be those where the opportunity existed for expansion. It's worth noting, by the way, that medieval man was well aware of the trade-offs involved in a sarting. If woodland was converted to arable, the rest of the village would have fewer resources for grazing the pigs or gathering fuel, for example. So the decisions were taken carefully, and sometimes a sarting by the local lord was actively resisted. There's an example in Worcestershire, where the peasants agreed to pay a fine of six shillings to stop the lord enclosing some common pasture. Often what happens is that land is advanced at the margins. For example, in hilly country, an extra slice might be cultivated a bit higher up the hill. This, of course, was again okay when times were good, but had the potential to suck when the economic weather closed in. However, even where a sarting was possible, the long and short is that in the 13th century the unit of landholding by peasants becomes increasingly small. Plots and tenancies are subdivided over the years to set up new families. So, in Anywhere, by 1279, only about 15 of our 50 families, or 25% of peasants, would hold a full yard land, or the double ox gang that was the norm in the north. About 20 families, or 40%, had half or quarter yard lands. And anyone with a quarter yard land, let's say 8 acres, would need another way of making money to pay the rent, and get enough food to feed the family. And the remaining 15 families in our village would be cottagers of some kind. The situation would have been more extreme in other areas. In places like Kent in the south-east or east Anglia, there was no tradition of handing down all the land to the eldest son, i.e. primogeniture. So land was divided into even smaller plots. Now, of course, he had to take the quality of land into account. You could survive on a much smaller amount of land in the agriculturally rich land of Norfolk than you could in the hills of the Pennines, for example, and the subdivisions did reflect all of this. But all of this begs the question, if the amount of land you have isn't enough now to live on, how in the Middle Ages do you get by? And what happens between 1200 and 1300 is a much greater integration of the peasantry into the general economy. This is part of a much more commercialised economy than we've previously seen. So, peasants find more ways of making a buck. Smallholders and cottagers had to find wage-earning jobs to survive. And there were opportunities to get into a retail trade with relatively low entry costs. Ale-making is a very good example. So the woman of the household would make money from spinning yarn or gathering and selling rushes or gathering fuel from the common or grazing a cow on the common and by so doing in good times they'd get by. They move away from the simple sufficiency of 1100 and by 1300 are producing directly for sale at a considerable scale. And this is just because they had to. But also it's partly because the demand from the towns increased So there is now the opportunity to do so, and to make a bit of money. It's also clear that many of the peasants themselves had a certain amount of free disposable income. A typical basic sum from a place like Anywerton could look something like this. A yardlander could produce 23 quarters of grain, given a yield of just below 1 to 4. 
from those 23 quarters they'd have to keep back 6 quarters for next year's grain and 10 quarters to feed the family and other animals. So that left them 7 quarters free, which could fetch anything up to £2. Obviously this is pretty much the best it gets. If they were villains, they'd have to be paying rents or service dues as well, and of course there are tithes to pay, but at the top end of the scale there was considerable leeway. So as we walk round Anywerton, you'll see a classic cottage economy, with peasants producing a whole load of agricultural produce that supplements their income. Cottages in particular would have been unlikely to concentrate on grain. In that market they'd be competing with much larger scale competitors, the domain land of the lords, as well as the wealthy peasants. So they tended to go for niche markets, poultry, eggs, fruit and vegetables, honey and wax, and ale as we've said before. The production of legumes increased, given the additional benefits to the land. Sometimes it would be industrial type crops like flax that the local market needed. Peasant gardens and yards were usually tended by women, so it would often be the woman who took their produce to market and towns to sell. One of the myths that we need to dispel then is any suggestion that peasants were stuck in a traditional production pattern. They were stimulated by rising prices for particular commodities and local demand from the towns. They changed their farming practices as they could in ways I think we covered last time. The adoption of windmills and watermills, the increasing use of horses moving if sensible to a three-crop rotation from a two-crop rotation. It's very clear that methods of farming were widely different in different parts of the country and reflected local circumstances. The market then increased the intensity of land use and a rising population increased the density of land holding. The extreme example could be found in Norfolk, as we mentioned earlier. And an example from Norfolk is something like the Manor of Martham in 1292, where 60% of the tenants had two acres or less, and only 3% had 10 acres or more. And you need to compare that to our standard model of 30 acres. In that sort of circumstance, because they had such small holdings, they had no period of fallow, for example, and they cropped much more thickly. They hoed and weeded as the corn grew. They planted large quantities of legumes to refresh the land. Partly they are responding to demand, partly they're taking advantage of the exceptional fertility of the area, but the point I'm making is that they are responding to local circumstance and opportunity. Peasants weren't restricted to agriculture to improve their incomes. Some of this depended on where you lived, so in the fens they caught wildfowl and fish and collected rushes, reeds and sedge and dug peat for fuel. In woodlands, they might burn charcoal or work at a number of crafts such as wood turning or glass making. Alternatively, there were some industries that employed full-time wage earners such as tin mining in Devon and Cornwall or coal and iron mining. Coal mining in particular could be done pretty cheaply by the peasants themselves since they simply sunk bell pits into the coal seam where it was close to the surface. And we've talked about leatherworking, smiths, ale brewing and tailoring being an established part of the rural economy. A number of crafts, which had been the preserve of the towns in 1100, spread into the countryside. It made sense, for example, to make pottery close to the source of clay. Cloth making happened on manors in lots of parts of the country, helped from 1180 with the invention of the fulling mill. By the way, if you're a web, someone in your past was probably a weaver. And if you're a walker, one of your ancestors was probably involved in the fulling industry. The traditional process before fulling mills came along with their mechanical hammers was to have people walk on the wool until it broke down, 
hence the name Walker. There are just a few signs, then, of villages appearing that are so focused on a particular occupation that it's reflected in their names. So, Potter's Marsden, for example, and Crockerton reflect the local focus on pottery. Meanwhile, a more active commercial land market is developing, with a more lively commercial market. This could be driven by the desire to get more rent, or expand a particular money-making venture, or to provide for the children. In some parts of the country, as much as 90% of land transfers were between people who weren't related, although that couldn't be described as typical. And why is that so relevant? Well, that's relevant because it's not just about peasants reorganising their land for the sake of their family, for marriages and all that sort of thing. So far, so good. What we're building up is a picture of a peasantry who are increasingly commercialised, contributing to a more sophisticated economy. But there are limits. Peasants, by and large, still don't have the confidence to specialise in a cash crop and then buy their own food. They would make their decisions based on what they needed rather than what would yield them the best profit. They were still very much held back by traditional rules of the village. For example, a yardlander couldn't extend the sheep flock beyond the customary limit of 40 animals. They competed against lords who had many advantages in terms of marketing and who made them pay entry fines for new buildings or equipment. There might be a growing commercial land market, but it's very notable that we don't get a big growth of large land units or successful peasant dynasties, like those Niverton. They are the exception rather than the rule. If one generation built up a large plot, they're generally not driven by creating a commercial empire, they're just being opportunistic. And then they divided the lands up between their families, and the opportunity is lost. In summary then, peasants were partly integrated into the economy. A traditional view of downtrodden and rather helpless peasants doing the things the way they always did is highly inaccurate, but they certainly work within a very structured and restricted framework that's only showing the very smallest signs of breaking down and the very beginnings of greater commercialisation and specialisation. They have a bit of buying power, but again it's limited. Many peasants did profit from the growth of the 13th century economy, but often it simply allowed a larger population of cottagers and smallholders who could survive when times were good, but would be blown away by unfriendly economic winds. So hopefully that's a reasonable place to stop. Not that we've finished with the medieval man on the Clapham omnibus. Next time, I'd like to look at how the peasantry worked together in the 13th century to handle the relationships with their overlords, and how they therefore began to have some influence on politics. We'll also look at how towns developed over those last hundred years, and spend a bit more time then with the gentry. We'll do all of this over the next three episodes, and hopefully two of those three will appear over the next four weeks, though I can't be quite sure yet how I'm going to manage that. But anyway, thanks everyone very much for listening, for all your donations and comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook and email. Have a great week and good luck.